Anger. You know the feeling. Sometimes it can be rage or frustration or irritation or just plain mad. Anger is probably universal and has scores of sources, both internal and external. The question is how to diffuse our anger at ourselves and also diffuse the anger another has toward us. Nearly all of us are experts at making anger grow, but my guest today is going to help us learn to make that anger shrink. He's going to help us de-escalate anger. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 135. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. This summer, teach your kids math and science skills as they learn to bake and cook. Radish is a subscription cooking club designed for kids, but they make real meals. Each kit comes with laminated recipe cards and a kitchen utensil designed for that month's recipe. The utensils are impressive, and I've seen a lot of junky utensils. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash radishkids. That's R-A-D-D-I-S-H-K-I-D-S, or click the links on the show notes banner. The Radish Kid recipes work. The procedures are right. Help your kids build their confidence and their utensil collection with a Radish Kids subscription. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash RadishKids. My guest today is Douglas Knoll. Doug left a successful career as a trial lawyer and became a peacemaker. In 2009, he helped found Prison of Peace, which has had impressive results changing the lives of inmates who learn empathic listening skills, leadership skills, and problem-solving skills, to name three. I've invited Doug on to talk about his book, De-Escalate, and how you and I can learn to de-escalate our relationships too. Hello, Doug. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. I love the name of your podcast. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Me too. Uh, Before we get rolling here, just if you would, give us a bit of your story. How did you get into de-escalation? Right. So uh, I was born born and raised in Southern California, and... After graduating from high school, I went uh, back east to Dartmouth College, graduated with a degree in English Lit, came back out to California, went to law school, uh, ended up coming down to Central California because I love the mountains. And I clerked for a year for an appellate judge and then went into practice as a trial lawyer in a firm. I did that for 22 years and I was very good at it, but I, it was, I, I figured out that it wasn't my calling. So I ended up going back to school and getting my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And I left, my, I left a very successful trial practice to become a mediator and a peacemaker. Well, one of the problems that has existed in peacemaking generally in mediation 
more specifically is that uh, the there is no there had been no good technology for how to deescalate people. It was all based on active listing, which was a complete misinterpretation of the work of Roger Gordon, who was a psychologist in the 1960s who coined the term active listening. Marshall Rosenberg, who founded nonviolent communication, basically stole his ideas and created nonviolent communication. But it was all based on I statements, and none of it worked. Uh, and many people have gone through active listening training, and they don't use it because it doesn't work. So, and I have the same problem. I was trained in using I statements, and uh, it didn't work. Well, one day I was in a mediation in 2004 in Santa Barbara, California, and it was a really tough case. And the idea came to me just out of the blue, listen to the emotions. Just, I don't know where it came from. Call it divine guidance or a brilliant inspiration. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I had the people start listening to each other's emotions rather than listening to their words. And within seconds, they had calmed down. They'd stopped screaming at each other. And they really started listening to each other. And at the end, at the, end the ex-husband was between a divorced couple. The ex-husband looked at his ex-wife and said, that's the first time you've listened to me in 25 years. And he started to cry. He started to sob. And I thought, wow, that was really amazing. You know, an hour before they were, there'd be blood on the floor if they had knives, <laughs> you know, and they went out to, they walked out holding hands and had lunch together and of course settled the problem. So I knew what I'd done, but I didn't know how it worked. And then it turns out that in 2007, Matthew Lieberman, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA, published a brain scanning study that showed what goes on when you listen to emotions? It's called affect labeling. And he, showed, he, de he demonstrated through the brain scanning that when you label somebody's emotions, you, you reflect back their emotions, what happens is that the prefrontal cortex is activated and the emotional centers of the brain are inhibited. And it happens automatically every time without fail because that's the way our brains are hardwired. So now I have the science, but I still was facing a lot of skepticism. So in 2010, along with my colleague, Oral Coffer, a mediator in Los Angeles, uh, we started the Prison of Peace Project. And we took these skills and said, let's acid test them in maximum security prisons. So for the last 10 years, we've been working in all over the world, really, in maximum security prisons, teaching long-termers and life inmates how to be peacemakers and how to de-escalate conflict in prison using these skills. And of course, it's worked like a charm. Uh, in fact, it's worked so well that the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has given us a lot of money and grants to expand the program throughout California. And that led me, the inmates pushed me to write a book. <laughs> so that led me to write my fourth book, Deescalate, which came out in 2017, Amazon bestseller, now it's in four languages and second printing, it's done really well. And then that all led me to start offering online courses and group coaching for people, all people from all different professions and walks of life to learn how to listen to each other. And it it's really goes beyond it. it yes, it works for de-escalating anger really well, but it also does all kinds of other really amazing things to our brains. I mean, really amazing. It's a, so it's become a foundational skill of life that I teach that completely changes lives. And it, it's just, you can tell I'm passionate about it. It's just amazing work. Well, it is impressive. And I've, and so we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, one of those is an ebook you have, and one of those is your email, um, your uh, newsletter. Um, so let's just sort of set the stage here, uh, just to make sure we get everybody on board. And I'm pretty sure everybody listening can remember one time when in normal moment with family members or coworkers went from fine to not fine that fast. 
and our companion starts the escalation, and we get put on the defensive. Uh, how could you do that? What were you <laughs> thinking? What's wrong with you? And that's instantly a very cold and lonely place to be, and it's very hard to get out of that place. What should that person do? How can that person learn to diffuse that moment? So here, here are the three steps. And so listeners, if you're, if you're listening, write this down. Uh, I'm not going to say it. you can immediately do this because it is counterintuitive and counter-normative, but this is what you do. Number one, you ignore the words. You've heard these angry words a million times before. There's nothing new here, so you can afford just to treat it like white noise. And when you treat it like white noise, where, where the words no longer have an effect on you, number one, you're not going to get triggered yourself. And number two, you're going to free up bandwidth in your brain to do the next two steps. Step number two, you're going to guess at the emotions. Now, I say guess. Actually, our brains are exquisitely tuned to read the emotional data fields of other humans. And I can get into the ev evolutionary biology of why that is. Just trust that your brain knows what's going on with that other person. Now, in our society, because emotions are not given priority or privilege in our society, rationality is, we've never learned how to use this innate ability, but all you have to do is sit in silence. And in a moment, your brain will pop into consciousness the emotions the other person is experiencing. You don't have to work at it. And then the third step, and this is the, this is the one that is a little tricky for people in the beginning, is you reflect back the emotions with a very simple use statement. So I would say, Dan, you're really angry. You are really pissed off. Nobody's listening to you. You feel unappreciated. You feel completely disrespected. And you feel a little bit of shame. And you know, you're really sad because you don't have the connection you want. You feel unloved and abandoned. And that's all you say. And then you wait and watch. And you're going to see three, four things happen. One, nodding of the head. Two, yeah, or exactly. Number three, a dropping of the shoulders. And number four, a sigh. All involuntary relaxation responses indicating that you have just validated or listened this person into existence. And you can literally take a person in a rage and calm them down in less than 45 seconds doing this because our brains are hardwired for it. And it takes practice. It takes, it takes a little practice. effort. It takes a little practice. And the problem is not that it's hard to do. It's that our cultural conditioning makes it difficult to do this. T telling somebody how they're feeling using a use statement is a very vulnerable, it, it, it appears to be a very vulnerable place to be. It's not at all. Once you start getting it, you'll see that actually what it does is it gives you great power. However, in the beginning, it seems very weird. And we've been taught and conditioned from childhood not to interrupt. So when you are interrupting person to tell them what they're feeling in the moment, it feels like you're violating all of these norms that you learned in childhood. Well, the, 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 the problem is that you're listening and listening has different rules than conversation. You're not when you're listening, you're not having a conversation. You are listening and it's a completely different set of rules. And so the rules of conversation that you learned at two years old do not apply to the rules of listening. And the, and the last thing that you have to overcome is the fear of being perceived as being patronizing or being rude or being impertinent or in, in, impinging on somebody's privacy zone. Not true. What, we, what you will find as you practice this is that 
the person that you are affect labeling, reflecting back emotions, will show deep, deep gratitude to you every single time. And so pretty soon you learn through experience that this is a really powerful gift to give some to somebody. I want to clarify, just to make sure that in case the listeners are a little confused, the difference between I statements and you statements. Yes. So, so let, let's you, clarify that. that. Yeah. I statements are appropriate when you are asserting your own emotions. So I could say something like, I'm really angry, or I feel really sad, or I feel disrespected. That's an appropriate use of an I statement. It is not appropriate to use an I statement to reflect something that you have said or felt. So I would not say, oh, what I hear, what I think you're feeling is sadness. First of all, it's passive voice, which is bad. But even more importantly, whenever I use an I statement, the focus is on me and your brain will not react the same way that it will if I say you are pissed off or you're really sad. So you're gonna use a you statement when you're speaking to the speaker, what they're saying, experiencing, uh, what emotional experiences they're having, you're going to use an I statement when you speak about your own experience or your own emotions. That's the difference. And um, Roger Gordon talked about this, but this is back in the 60s. Obviously, they didn't have the neuroscience that we have today. And his work was completely misconstrued by the uh, by the human potential movement of the 1960s. And so that's where this active listening stuff came in. And everybody just got it wrong. It's, and it's been wrong ever since. Uh, and you'll see clinical therapists and counselors and psychologists, they all use I statements and it's wrong. And HR people, especially, it's very smarmy when, they, you know, you, you, these HR people will use it. And, and, and they're not doing it because they want to be authentic. They're doing it because they were taught to do. If you do active listening, people will, you know, stuff. It's all bullshit. Oh, excuse me. It's all, you know, it's all it is. And it, it, and they're smarmy and manipulative and it doesn't work. But use statements work. And it's unbelievable how well they work. You have a page on your website that addresses some techniques to start with. And at the end, we'll give the website address in case mm -hmm. people didn't write it down or they want to have something to refer to. Right. But I want to see if we can parse out kinds of anger. The oh, angry yeah. spouse. This is just needs... a very recent blog I wrote. Well, that's one of the reasons I bring it up. Yeah. The angry, yeah. angry spouse needs no introduction. We, so, even if you're not married, you know what the angry spouse looks like. Right. So there, so, yeah. So anger, first of all, generally speaking, anger really is hiding a bunch of other emotions. And so whenever you see somebody who's angry, anger is not their real emotion. Anger is a reaction to the emotional experience they're having that's underneath that they may not even be aware of. Most people are not emotionally competent so they suffer from a condition called alexithemia, the inability to express, to acknowledge, to, to recognize and acknowledge and express their own emotions. The, and there's a whole reason we can talk about why that is. It's a cultural thing. But um, so when people are angry, they've got a lot of emotions. Well, it also turns out that there are at least 10 different kinds of anger. And so one of the things that you want in more advanced work in this area is you want to learn what these 10 different kinds of anger are. And what are the what are the and then what are the emotions that are driving that anger? Because once you understand the emotions that drive the anger, then all you have to do is reflect back those emotions to, to this angry person and you'll calm them down. And so it, it's very helpful to not look at anger as being this chaotic, awful mess that I'm in right now, but as an indicator, a symptom of emotional distress underneath that I can now use 
to de-escalate somebody. So I'll just quickly go through the, go through, I won't go into a great explanation because I could obviously spend hours on this. Um, so you've got, you've got anger avoidance, people who avoid anger at all costs because they think it's evil to be angry. And yet they really are angry and their behaviors come out and they, and they, and they hurt themselves. You've got sneaking anger. These are the passive aggressives, people who say yes and do no. Extremely angry, but they're afraid that if they show their anger, they're going to be punished or there are going to be consequences. So what they do is they, they frustrate people by not doing what they say they're going to do. You've got paranoid anger. These are people who have a, uh, an unjustified belief that they are being threatened by something or some person. And they have a deep fear. Obviously, paranoid anger is being driven by fear of loss or fear of harm. You've got um, sudden anger. These are people who are, get explosively angry because they perhaps probably from abuse. And underneath, the, the sudden anger has a list of about 20 emotions that could drive sudden anger. So you could use just about any emotion you want, and you're probably going to be right with sudden anger. You've got shame-based anger. These are people who have been shamed or humiliated, uh, or they, they have been shamed and humiliated, and their anger is at themselves, but they're projecting it outwards because they, they just feel this deep and abiding shame, and, and the only way they know how to cope with it is by getting angry at other people. You've got deliberate anger. These are people, or what I call instrumental anger. The anger, this kind of anger is used to coerce, to threaten, and actually to hurt people. And it's very intentional. Uh, now, why, why would people do this? Because they don't realize that they have other choices. They've never learned other ways of solving conflicts, dealing with disputes, and getting their needs met other than through violence. This is the classic problem we have faced in prisons over the years. And when we teach men and women in prison, that they have choices. We never tell them not to do violence, but we tell them you have other choices and we teach them how to use those choices. The violence goes away. Um, another kind of anger is addictive anger. These are people who get angry because they get the adrenaline rush and they may have other problems where they're not feeling their emotions. They're so shut down that they feel nothing. And so they get angry in order to feel something. Very destructive kind of anger. So these are people who are emotionally shut down they are emotionally defensive, uh, and they can't, they're highly alexithemic. They can't relate to their own emotions. So you'll see people like this will be, um, fall, uh, many domestic violence offenders, both men and women, would fall into this class. Then you have people who have habitual anger. They're just angry all the time. And they have, they've just fallen into the habit of being angry and have really never fallen into the habit of being calm and content and peaceful. And so there are a bunch of emotions that come up for that. And then you've got moral anger, which we've all seen before, righteous indignation. And moral anger has its place. But when people get morally, get righteously indignant at the little things, and they start to become judgmental and rigid, and, you know, they, they, they call other people evil and they can't tolerate differences, that's a moral anger that is dysfunctional and destructive. And then finally, um, there's hate which is obviously a very intense form of anger, uh, a rage at somebody. And typically hate is generated by deep shame, humiliation, rejection, betrayal, stuff like that. And so each of these types of anger has its own set of emotions. And oftentimes the emotions are very similar through all of them. For example, you'll see in almost every kind of anger, fear and anxiety and shame are very common are, are common common to all types of anger but there's some types of anger that have more intense emotions than others do 
And so that's why you get the different flavors of anger, because there are different emotional experiences driving that type of anger. And like I said, we'll get to you. We can give out the website later, but if people people want a thorough analysis, there's a blog I just wrote that lays it all out loud and clear. Uh, in the 80s, Suzette Hayden Elgin wrote a book called Success with the Gentle Art of Verbal Self-Defense, and it was a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier the step one is when you're listening to the angry person, you say don't hear the words. She says sort of take yourself out of the attack. Uh, don't For her, she would say don't take the bait which right. is the thing you respond to. But for her, the real message isn't, <laughs> isn't the thing you want to grab onto. It's the sentence that follows. Um, is there, so she's saying, you know, sort of see yourself as a third person and she is more eloquent than I am. Do you think your advice is similar to this in that if you can, sort of visualize yourself as a third party to this encounter, you have a chance to learn how to de-escalate. The difference between that kind of thinking and what I teach, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not saying that it's bad, bad advice, but the problem is that you have to have, you have to be, you, you can't, you can't get triggered to do that. And the problem most people have is the trigger mechanism happens so fast in their brains when somebody starts shouting at them that they don't have the presence of mind to detach and get out of it. So you, so, so it's very difficult to do that and to do that effectively. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of training to be able to detach yourself from a situation. And then you run the risk of not being vulnerable and not being authentic because you detached yourself. So what I teach is that when you ignore the words and really reflect on the emotions, you have, there's deep, you're creating deep vulnerability, which is strong. And you are also creating emotional safety. And you're not distancing yourself from the person at all. In fact, what you're doing is creating a sense of emotional safety. And that creates a bubble around you, a protection that can't be penetrated. Because as long as you're reflecting another person's emotions, there's nothing that person can grab a hold of in you to make you feel bad or to, or to make you feel defensive or to make you react with anger or aggression. So the, the, the difference between what I'm teaching and what other people have taught in the past is I teach how. This is how you do it. And the result that you get is the kind of result that they talk about. But, they, but they're really asking people to do too much when they say, for example, detach or take yourself out of the equation. That requires tremendous self-control and training. And if you get highly triggered easily, you're just not going to be able to do it. On the other hand, if you get highly triggered and you learn to ignore the words, one, you're not going to get triggered. And two, as soon as you start reflecting emotions, you're going to calm yourself down. Calm yourself down. You just cannot get angry at somebody when you are reflecting back their emotions. You develop compassion automatically. It's amazing to watch and to do and, and to have that experience. It's impressive to think about. Yeah. As I was reading your ebook, I kept thinking that, uh, that this a lot of this sounds like a negotiator I have recently found named Stuart Diamond. And Stuart is fantastic at interpersonal kind of 
like day-to-day business, well, mostly business, because that's where he gives his lectures, but that applies to the home. And so when, you know, when, when people are dealing in multi-million or billion dollar deals, that's really high stakes. But that's right. I don't think, I mean, really for any one of us at any given moment, when dinner is risk being burned and your spouse <laughs> is yelling at you and things are going completely out of control at that moment, there's nothing more high stakes than finding out how to de-escalate this. That's right. This, this, this skill, this is why I call it a foundational skill of life. We've watched, we've worked with some of the, I've worked with some of the roughest, meanest, most dangerous men on the planet in Corcoran State Prison down at Corcoran, California. And, and I, I mean, I was teaching for two years, 100 feet from Charles Manson's cell. We were in the belly of the beast, level four. First time I met my students, they were in shackles and chains all tatted up, all coming out of gangs. And these skills transformed their lives. They became different men, different human beings. Saw the same thing in the women's prisons. Once they learned how to listen to others into existence, everything changed. I'll tell you a quick story, a story I love to tell. Working with a guy, working with these guys, one guy came into class one day and told this story. He said, I have a call with my family. I got a 15-minute call. And... Usually my daughter gets on, my seven-year-old daughter gets on the phone and I can only keep her on the phone for 30 seconds. And when we, when the family comes to visit, she doesn't get anywhere near me. She's just scared of me. Last week after class, I had a call and this time I decided to do something different. I decided to do what you taught me to do, which is listen to my daughter's emotions. Her mother couldn't get her off the phone. And after the call was over with, her mother reported to me that the daughter said, mommy, I want my own 15 minutes with daddy every week all by myself. And when she came for visiting, she, as soon as she saw him, she ran for him and jumped on him and jumped up into his arms. First time in his life that's ever happened. And he was telling this story with tears in his eyes. And he says, I do more good behind these bars, listening my child into existence 15 minutes a week than everybody else in the family does for her out in the free world. That's a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment. And I've got hundreds of stories just like that. <laughs> well, so it's interesting you mentioned uh, the man and his child. When we were emailing to set up this interview, this talk, one of the things that I presented as one of these kinds of de-escalation moments is that teenager yes. who responds to every question, I don't know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The so, classic grunt, right. And she's in the other room. Uh, <laughs> well, bring him in here, and I can show. I can show you how to do it. <laughs> uh, so it's it's almost enough to anger the parent. It does anger the parent, which, which obviously is counterproductive. So that's right. Uh, how how do we introduce or re-emphasize emotional intelligence? Ah, so first of all, start with the babies. And start reflecting the baby uh, actually at about two years old. First of all, humans are not born with emotions. We have to we have to develop emotions. It's 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 uh, emotions are cognitive constructs that we create in our brains. We're born with something called affect, but then we have to take that affect and create databases of different internal feelings and translate that into words called emotions. 
So that, and that, that starts to happen at verbalization, usually right around 18 months. The best thing you can do for your child is reflect back your child's emotional experience as often as you possibly can. And if you do that consistently, a couple of things are going to happen. One, if your child has meltdowns, those meltdowns are going to go away in about four to six months because your, your child's brain is going to develop so much faster than the peers, other two-year-olds and three-year-olds. Uh, they just grow out of it faster when you are stimulating their brain with emotions and helping them build this emotional database. And by the time they become teenagers at 13 or 14, you're not going to get the grunts. You're going to have a, a teenager who's going through the usual crisis of adolescence, but has the emotional tools to deal with it. And you just keep affect labeling and keep supporting and keep reflecting emotions. When you discipline a child, do not discipline until you've de-escalated because then the lesson will take. If you punish a child who's escalated and emotional, all the child knows is he, he or she's getting hurt and whatever lesson you're trying to impart will not impart. And what that does, the other thing it does is it drives the child to protect itself against the hurt by going emotionally cold, build up walls, become defensive, become unresponsive. And when you see the 14 year old, that's what you've got. You've got a, a, a young person who's not feeling emotionally safe. So it's not all is, all is not lost if, if you didn't do any of that, because the human brain is immensely malleable and plastic. So here's the thing. You've got a 14-year-old, let's take a 14-year-old boy. That's the classic. You take a 14-year-old who's sitting there, who's standing there, and gives you no information whatsoever, flat affect, no, no emotional cues whatsoever, but you still know what's going on. And you can say, depending on the context and the circumstance, you might say something like this, you're really angry. You're really pissed off. You don't feel like you're being respected. You don't feel heard. You don't feel listened to. You don't feel appreciated. And it really makes you sad. And you feel abandoned and unloved, which is exactly what's going on. And you feel confused and you feel anxious. Now, what's going to happen? Nothing. <laughs> you're, not even gonna get the, you're not even going to get the four autonomic responses that I talked about before. So how do you know that it's, it's working? And the, and, the, and the secret is this. If that young person does not walk away from you, then he or she wants more. If they walk away from you, that's fine. But if they don't walk away from you, you're penetrating and you just keep, you don't, no more than 30 or 40 seconds at a time, but you repeat this process, if you can, a couple of times a day for, it might take up to six months. And one day that child is going to wake up emotionally and start having a real conversation with you because he or she feels emotionally safe in your presence. Now, if you invalidate or yell or scream at your kid, you've just done, undone all of your hard work. So what is emotional invalidation? It's stuff like, uh, don't be a sissy, stop crying. Don't be such a drama queen. Um, it's not that big a deal, but I do listen to you. Don't be sad, be a manly man. Don't be a girly girl. You know, I've got, I've got, I've got five pages, single spaced of invalidating phrases that people use. And we do it unconsciously and it's extremely abusive. And we do it because we're trying to soothe our own anxiety because that's what we learned from our parents. So when you start emotionally validating a child, a 14 year old, 
by reflecting back their emotions and you refrain from insulting them or invalidating them with these invalidating statements, you stop the abuse, you create emotional safety. And in that zone of emotional safety, you allow the emotional competency of the child to come out and to develop. And over a period of time, it will. Not overnight. Heck, you know, our, our brains are not fully developed until we're 25 years old. And parents expect a two-year-old to be, you know, to be an adult. I mean, how stupid is that? We have a legal system that says we're going to try 12-year-olds as adults. That's insane. That child's brain isn't anywhere near adult. And, and it won't be till 25. That's why the car rental companies won't rent anybody under 25, because they know from experience that, the, that um, accidents don't happen with 25-year-olds like they do with 22-year-olds. And UCLA did a whole study on this and found out that the, you know, the reason for this is because the prefrontal cortex does not finally mature until about 25 years of age. Interesting. So that's, that's how you do it. It takes patience, but it's worth it. Because you feel good about yourself, you feel good as a parent because you're doing the right thing, and you're giving this precious gift of listening your child into existence, which will pay off in spades down the road for that child and for you. Let's talk a minute about the guessing. Now, I agree with you that mostly when, when my child or my, you know, my spouse or somebody is angry with me, I'm reasonably certain I know why. Now there's there is a there is a wrinkle to this problem and say it's the boss who's yelling at the staff because something happened but the something the the anger the the, the volume that's coming out doesn't reflect that yesterday he found out his brother was diagnosed with cancer, right? So that's a good reason to be angry and the staff happens to be the one that's there cuz what are you going to do get mad at cancer? Um but so you can't guess correctly. But what happens when we guess wrong? Nothing. So I'll say, hey, Dan, man, you are really angry. And you'll say, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. And I said, oh, you're really frustrated. Yeah. And you're really anxious. Yeah. And you're really worried about this. Yeah. And you don't feel like anybody's listening to you. Yeah. And you're really pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's going on there? We're going to get corrected. You're, you're going to get corrected. You come right back with a correction. You're probably not wrong. Most likely what's going on is that, that person just has not been able to, to, to tag that emotion. You did because you see it. They don't see it. So you, can, you affect label around it. You reflect around it. And then you come back to it. And then they'll acknowledge it and say, yeah, I'm really angry. I, it happens over and over and over again. Socrates is credited with the phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. Self-examination is hard in that it is challenging to do. And sometimes we don't like what we find. That's right. Things that are hard to do are worth doing, in my opinion. So let's just, uh, like a near perfect croissant, that <laughs> takes patience mm -hmm. And lots and lots of practice, and which that means mistakes. Right. So we've just started talking about it, but let's make sure we get the point that in in self-examining, we're going to make mistakes. But in right. de-escalation, I'm going to make mistakes. Is this is sort of rhetorical? 
Is there more harm in not trying or in guessing and getting it wrong? I think there's more harm in not trying, obviously. Now, here's the thing. And when, you, when you're going out and, and when I teach these, both on my online courses and my live workshops, um, I always tell people, number one, do not use this on your spouse. Do not use this on your teenagers until you get some experience with it. Where do you want to practice this? You want to practice this in safe places where if you make a mistake, which you inevitably will, you will not be shamed or humiliated. So pre-pandemic, my favorite place was say, go to Starbucks and order your latte. And when you come up and you're placing your order and giving your credit card to the barista, ethic label, say something like, wow, you look really happy today. You look really excited. And you can't go wrong with that because Starbucks hires people like that, right? So at 6 a.m., they are going to be happy. They do love, love their, for the most part, love their jobs. So, so you, you don't even have to guess, <laughs> you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to be right. And then watch what happens because you're the people in the back of the line are going to get angry because this barista is just going to start talking because you validated the barista into existence. And now all she wants to do is tell you her whole life because finally somebody is listening to her and validating her. You do that four or five or six times. You do it with other strangers, store clerks, people you run into, maybe, maybe with some friends where the social situation is safe. And then you, you will begin to learn that, indeed, this really works. You have to prove it to yourself. It's not good enough for Doug Knoll to tell you that it works. You have to learn it yourself. You have to see for yourself that it really works. Then you can start applying it to family members. Small children, you can always practice on. Grandchildren or small children, they eat this stuff up. And you can't make mistakes with small children. They just love the attention. But, you know, teenagers, your spouse, partner, Wait until you've got some sophistication in the skill before you try it. Now, in terms of self-examination, this is what happens. As you affect label and other people's emotions, you begin to become self-aware of your own emotions. You become much more sensitive to how you're feeling and how you're experiencing things emotionally. And you learn how to label your own emotions called self-affect labeling, which is how you self-regulate, how you calm yourself down. The only way to really calm yourself down is to label your emotions, to talk to yourself. Say, am I really angry right now? I'm, there's the I statement, right? I'm really angry. I'm really frustrated. I'm whatever it is. And go through the emotions that you're, you're experiencing. As you do that, you are engaging in this Socratic process of self-examination because you're learning how to associate your emotional experiences with what's going on in your life, and you become much, much more deeply self-aware. Now, the other thing I do is I teach people about triggers, uh, and there's a whole series of exercises I take my students through to learn in more advanced courses how to identify the triggers that were programmed into you in childhood, usually early childhood. And then you can start ethic labeling the feelings that come up with those triggers, which then reprograms your brain so that you are no longer, that trigger disappears. You're no longer going to be programmed by it. You're not going to get triggered by it. The programming is gone. And through this process over a period of months, really doesn't, it really is a process of months. You completely, you, cha you change. You completely change who you are. You transform. Hmm. And I, I didn't realize the power of this until I'd been working in the prisons for a while and watching Right about the eighth week of, eighth week of training, that's when the, the inmates would change from these thorny, black, ugly things into these beautiful flowers. Right around week eight. Every single, first time I saw it, 
I said, whoa, that's wild. Then we did it again, happened again. And then I started watching for it. And sure, at eight weeks of practice is when they started, they started changing. And they completely changed. And so does everybody else out in, you know, in the, you know, outside of prison. Every time I teach this, ports come back, eight weeks. As long as you're diligent about your practice, the change happens. And now you become much more self-aware and you're able to self-regulate and you're able to be empathic. And guess what? You're developing emotional competency. Which is wonderful. And yes, it is. Because this last year, 2020, was what it was. <laughs> Tough. I want to bring yes. I want to bring up a topic, um, a very sensitive topic, and it could be probably a book or an episode all by itself. You posted a link on your Facebook page about recognizing suicidal thoughts. Yeah. And 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 we know that. Uh, Teenage suicide ideation is at probably all-time levels, and suicide acts are probably right behind that. Right. What can family members do to help identify this and help loved ones who well, might be struggling with this? Well, you know, I'm I'm obviously not a therapist or a psychologist. I would I would I would so so from my perspective as a peacemaker and a mediator, uh, I would be looking. First thing I'd be looking for is watching for depression, signs of depression, withdrawal, not wanting to engage, um, retiring to the room, not even coming out. I mean, that those are the obvious signs. Obviously, if you see other kinds of signs like cutting, you know, if you can pick up alcohol or drug abuse, that those are all signs. What's going on? Why the, the suicidal ideation is a, a deep depression. And somebody who's, and again, it comes back, at least in my opinion, to not being emotionally safe, to not being emotionally valued, to not feeling like you're worth anything, that life isn't worth living because there's nothing to live for. And it, teenagers who have not developed emotional competency do not have the tools to deal with, you know, setbacks in life or frustration or sadness or peer rejection or bullying. They don't have the They may not have the resiliency to deal with that. So what they do is they retreat into themselves and just start beating themselves up to the point where, you know, they they start having these ideations of, of killing themselves. So, from my perspective, you do exactly what we've been talking about. You do in a very non-confrontational way, in, as gently as you can. You start affect labeling them, even if they're not responding back. So you're feeling really sad. You're really depressed. You feel like life isn't worth living. You don't feel loved. You feel completely abandoned. And you feel a lot of deep grief and sadness inside yourself. How long? I took, what, 25, 20 seconds, 30 seconds? Right. You just repeat that over and, you know, two, three, four times a day. Just you, what you're trying to do is validate, listen the child into existence, validate their emotions. You may not get a response from them, but you're trying to build a bridge. Showing that you have, you are emotionally safe to be with, and that you recognize and acknowledge exactly what they're going through, because you're able to speak their emotions to them in a way that nobody else has. And I'm not going to say that's going to solve the problem, but it can't hurt. I, this this almost feels like a lob softball question, but. In, in either our, our 
teen or spouse or boss or the barista, how, what should our tone of voice be? Should Good we question. be sports cheer amped up or are we looking <laughs> for that calm? Hey, is pillow talk time. More, this is more advanced, but we, I can at least give guidance. So your tone is going to, your tone, your tonality and your pace are going to, are going to be just below or where or above, depending on the circumstance. So let's take anger first. You're going to come in, you're going to come in with an intensity, tonality and pacing that's just a little, little bit below where your speaker is. So if the speaker says, oh, blah, 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 you know, you, you're going to say, you're really angry and you're really pissed off and yeah, yeah, no one's listening to you. If you really appreciate it. And then what happens in that situation is it's going to ratchet up yeah, and you, you go right with them. Yeah. And then the third time they come down, they're actually going to start de-escalating after the third round. And they say, oh, and you follow them and you say, oh, so you're, you're still feeling really frustrated, not appreciated. You feel like you're dealing with a bunch of idiots and you just can't get your work done. It's just really, really frustrating. So you follow them. If it's if you're working on the sad, depressed side, you're going to stay a little bit above where they are, and they will follow you up to a normal conversation through about three or four turns. So your tone of voice is going to match closely, but not identically. Tone and speed are going to match where the person is at. It takes a little more practice to do that, and it's a more advanced level, but that's that's how you would do it. Okay. It means you have to be aware. You have, here's the thing: you've got to. If you're not willing to give this gift, it's not going to work. You have to be willing to give the gift of listening another person into existence. That has to be your primary purpose. And there are times when it's just not appropriate to do it. I mean, when you're angry or tired or you're triggered yourself, you it, you may not be able to affect label. But you have to be in a place where it's appropriate to affect label and you are willing to give the gift. Well, it seems like it's actually two gifts, one to the person and one to yourself. Well, that's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. But I, you make a good point that if you... If there isn't time to do it well, this would be probably a case where it's better to not try to do it poorly and wait till later to do it well. That maybe does that sound close to right? Well, close. Actually, once you get once you've mastered the skill, you won't do it poorly. But the question is whether or not you're in the right mindset to to really affect label. So, for example, when when are the times when we don't want to affect label? We don't want to do it. If we're super tired and stressed out, we may not have the capacity to listen to somebody. If um, we're really angry ourselves and you haven't gotten really advanced training so you can affect label yourself quickly to calm down and then turn around to affect label the other person, probably can't do it. There, the one of, the more, one of the more challenging things that my students experience is when Let's say they're talking to a partner or a spouse and they affect label the spouse, but they have a deep need themselves to be listened to. And they're listening their spouse into existence and calming things down, but there's nobody there to listen to them because the spouse hasn't learned the skills yet. That's tough. And, and 
there are remedies for that, but uh, but that's a that, that's very common. Sometimes you just you think to yourself, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to keep de-escalating this person? Why can't this person just help me out? I'm always giving and never getting. That that feeling comes up. The, the but the way you get around that is by realizing. So your point a moment ago, when you give, you're giving to yourself as well. You wouldn't if <laughs> I'm a secondary black belt and a Tai Chi master, I can take care of myself. But if I'm encountering somebody on the street with a weapon, I'm probably not going to affect label. <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to run. That'd be my first choice if I can. Uh, you will not affect label in group situations where it would potentially be embarrassing for the speaker for you to label their emotions. So you want to make sure that wherever you affect label, it's reasonably safe. You probably wouldn't affect label in a group situation when you're not the group leader because you don't want to usurp the power of the group leader or the authority. So that wouldn't be appropriate either. Right. And it's all about discernment. The, the other thing, the other thing is that just because you can give a gift doesn't mean that you have to. There are people that you will have within your circle whom you start epic labeling them and listening to them in this way. And they are just all, they're going to try to suck you dry because all they want to do is be validated. It's a real rush. I call them energy leeches. And I tell people just when you run into these acquaintances who just want to talk and be listened to because it feels, it feels so good. You, you, I, you have, you have my permission to say no. <laughs> it's like my puppy. Oh, you pet me. Pet me some more. Exactly. Play with me some more. Exactly. Exactly. And people are like that because they've never been validated. And when you validate them at this deep level, it feels so good that they just want more of it. So, you know, you got to use some level. There's a sadness to that. Well, of course there is. But that's another show. That's another show. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, let's take a slide a little bit here and go into, I have a little segment I do is just a short answer uh, to a few questions. Sure. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, or umami, which one do you prefer the most? What was the last one? Umami. I don't know what that one is. uh, That's that... Uh, they, sometimes they say MSG does that, but like mushrooms or something oh, that okay, has that sort it. of com- the whole complete. Boy, I like thing. them. I like them all, especially if they're combined in a really clever way. Uh, yes, that's a good answer. But I mean, that 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 would as a cook. I mean, I'm looking for that subtle blend of flavors. What's your favorite food? Favorite food? Oh man, there's so many. Um, I love cooking chicken in a whole bunch of different ways from a really bold kind of Southwest flavor to really delicate, more French style lemon butter caper sauce, something like that. Chicken's great because it's kind of bland and you can do a lot of cool things with it. 
What's your least favorite food? Liver. Don't even get me close to it. I'll peek all over the table. <laughs> that's, that's very vivid. What gets you excited? Serving human beings, serving others really gets me excited. The other thing that really gets me excited is skiing. I, I'm a level three certified ski instructor. I love to ski. It's over with. We went had our last day on Sunday, unfortunately. So, but short snowfall this year. Yeah. So what turns you off? What turns me off? People who are rude, disrespectful, and unaware that they're, they're, they're that way. What sound do you love? My violin. I play jazz and blues violin. And when I nail an improvisation, it's the best. Or even when I'm playing a note and I get the whole room to vibrate just on one note, like a D on the A string. It's incredible. What sound do you hate? Um, really bad music. <laughs> really bad music, like the kind of stuff a lot of people play today. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite food indulgence? Favorite food indulgence? Cheese. Goat cheese. Good answer. All right. So this is the time. Let's talk. Uh, so your book is Deescalate. Let's talk about your website. I'm going to put these on the show notes page, but also for people who don't get there, uh, your website and your Facebook page. So the uh, website is really simple, dougnoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. That'll take you to the homepage. And from the upper menu bar, which is a very simple menu bar, you can navigate to just about anywhere. And it's got online courses, access to my books. I've written four books, a whole ton of blog articles on all of these topics where I go into all of this stuff in great detail. Um, the book, Deescalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, is, of course, available off my website. But it's all, it was published by Atria and Beyond Words, imprints of Simon & Schuster. So it's available in all the usual, usual places. And there's an audible version for those who like to listen to audibles. So it's in Kindle, print, trade paperback, as well as as well as well in in uh, Audible. My wife read the book, which is really cool. And she did a beautiful job with it. So And so you can go to, of course, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books a Million or whatever it is, any site to get the book. Um, it's in four languages. So if you want to read it in, um, let's say, Chinese, you can do that. If you want to read it in, I think it's in Arabic. <laughs> and I know it's in German <laughs> as well as English. Nice. So, so, so that's it. And the book, you know, the book, I, did, I wrote the book to make it very accessible. It's a, it's a kind of book that you could read in about four hours, about, uh, about the time that it takes to fly across the country. You could, you can read the book and it gives you just hundreds and hundreds of examples of how all this works with a lot of stories to, to illustrate, illustrate it. Many people have, found the book to be useful. I have found over the years that working with people, coaching them and helping them learn the skills um, really accelerates their growth, but you can, you can get it off the book fine. And of course the online courses and group coaching, if you want to do that too, lots of, lots of opportunities to learn. And you've also got a Facebook page. I've got a Facebook page, Doug Noel, 
Douglas Knoll is my Facebook page. I've got uh, a YouTube. If you go to, if you type, if you Google out uh, YouTube Douglas Knoll, I've got a lot of YouTube videos that talk about a lot of this stuff and teach a lot of this stuff. So you can check out, check out YouTube. You know, I've got LinkedIn. I've got some articles on LinkedIn that might be useful. And, you know, I've got a Twitter feed, but I'm not a Twitter guy. So <laughs> I post, I post up there, but I never go there to read anything else. So, but yeah, if you're into Twitter, you can, you know, sign up be a follower and I do post everything to Twitter so you can follow it that way. If you sign up, you know, subscribe as an email subscriber. I know we get way too much email, all of us, but if this is something that resonates with you, I do do frequent emails and you get the RSS feed. So whenever I post a new blog, which is usually once every week or once every 10 days, you'll get that blog link in your email. And also subscribers get early bird pre-registration discounts on my courses as I roll them out. My next course is going to be a, a fairly extensive course on negotiation. So pr probably coming out sometime in the summer. So now you've learned how to calm somebody down. What do you do next? The next thing you've got to do is know, okay, if there's a problem there to be solved, then you've got to know what to do. And one of the, one of the problem solving techniques is not how to negotiate out a conflict or how to negotiate out a problem. And I'll be teaching people how to do that. Very good. Well, I'm going to recommend people definitely go uh, subscribe to your uh, email list and get the um, get the ebook, which I read and I was like, "Wow, this is just with the free content alone, you have plenty to work with." And oh, then yeah. you can go from there. But there's you've got a lot of really useful information out there, and uh, it's impressive. It's done well. Thank you, appreciate it, and thanks for having me on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. I know you've got another thing here, so I'm going to give you a minute. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Links to Doug's webpage and Facebook page will be on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 135. As I mentioned in the interview, I think you'll find a lot of useful information from Doug's free content. Doug's book, De-Escalate, is available on Audible. I'll put a link to his book on the show notes page. You can use that link to sign up for Audible, Download the book and cancel your subscription and keep the book. Doug gets paid, you get your book, and everybody's happy. Of course, you can keep your subscription to Audible if you like. I'll add the Amazon link to the show notes page, and you can see on the tab how to use the sign-up for Audible. If you have friends who can benefit from learning to de-escalate, please share this episode on your social media feeds. Like it when you see it as well. If you like the show, please support it with fiat currency at culinarylibertarian.com support. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher and subscribe so each episode is there waiting for you. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.